Hey listeners, welcome to the Intelligent Conversations, where we believe that everyone has a form of intelligence that resides within them. We invite guests from various backgrounds to share with you what makes them unique. Our hope is that you and I can learn and grow together. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Intelligent Conversations podcast. Today I have the honor to listen to Jamie Joyce. Jamie is an executive director and founder of an organization working to revolutionize how we debate at a national level, create legislation technologically, and how we organize info on the internet. She also has a wide range of experience in the nonprofit world. So Jamie, thank you for coming on. I know you have awesome things to share with us today, but I like to kind of help break the ice, you know, introduce you to the audience, give you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience as well. But uh, what kind of got you into what you're doing today? What kind of motivated you to head down that pathway? Well, thank you so much for your question. And thanks again for hosting me, Josh. And hello, everyone who's listening. So, you know, from a very early age, I became very passionate and aware of the power of information. Uh, When I was a little girl, I kind of fell for the stereotype that in order to be smart, you had to wear glasses because all these television characters I watched and loved wore glasses. So I made like this silly, unsound, logical association between wearing glasses and intelligence, which is totally a stereotype. And so in order to get glasses, because I had perfect vision, I actually ended up staring into the sun and burning my eyes, and now I'm legally blind. Um, And it was after that moment that I realized, like, I didn't magically become more intelligent just by wearing glasses. Instead, like, I made life harder for myself, and I damaged myself pretty permanently. And so it was in this epiphany that I realized, like, wow, information is powerful, and it doesn't have to be true in order for it to have an impact on our lives. And so I just became hyper aware of, like, concepts of socialization and how impressionable people can be and how we can be manipulated and coerced by information, true or not true. And over time, I I think that I, I really feel strongly about how if we're going to be using information in order to make decisions, especially at the collective level, of, you know, the state level, the national level, we should work very hard to make sure that those decisions are based on good information, that it's been conducted, the decision's been conducted in an informed and inclusive process that makes sure every single person has input and is heard and is consenting to the decision being made. So, you know, this is completely integral and a fundamental basis for how democracy should operate. And so the Society Library and all of our programs are really about how do we organize information to make sure that informed inclusive and less biased decisions are possible. Thank you for sharing that. That was, uh, that was a lot of information. I, I kind of want to talk about it. It was great though. I, I, I like that. I think especially, I mean, we hear the term information age quite a bit in today's world, especially in, I mean, I actually uh, interviewed someone before uh, when your episode is going to be going live and they, they talked about kind of like what goes on behind the scenes of Google, what goes on that type of uh, field. And it was it was a phenomenal episode. I liked that. And it, it seems to be that information is just critical. And I like what you said that if you have the wrong type of information, then you could be making some very poor decisions down the road. So I'm kind of interested. How do you do that in government? Like what's kind of the aim? What's the goal? What, what are you trying to do there? Yeah. So 
at the Society Library, we create a variety of different knowledge products that are meant to serve the public's informational needs. So one product that we create is the library itself. The Society Library is all about collecting all of the arguments, claims, and evidence from across different media types. So it's not just the content in books and scholarly articles and government mm -hmm. reports and industry reports, but also like what are people saying on TikTok and Twitter and in documentaries? Like what is everyone saying about this issue and how can we bring all of this knowledge together and structure it so that everyone can get both a bird's eye view of all the different positions from all points of view, um, but also be able to dive down as deep as they want to find all of the arguments and claims and evidence and the argumentation that refutes or supports you know, claims and arguments. Um, and so essentially the service that we're offering society for the library is essentially just saving thousands and thousands of research hours and organizational hours by doing all this research for people and creating this curated collection so people can explore. And I mean, we're not interested in um, censoring content. We're not interested in driving people towards assuming certain conclusions. We're just about organizing all points of view, contextualizing it by evidence and type of evidence and like some helpful like categorizations and just let people come to the truth themselves. But then, of course, great, we've got a library of mm -hmm. knowledge. Well, I know, then right? what next? <laughs> so, right, yeah, it's like, that's great and all to be informed and educated, but like, what happens afterwards? So, currently, we are like prototyping and working towards uh, the realization of our other programs, which include things like the Great American Debate and the Internet Government. But what that means for us right now is we're creating decision making models. So, once we collect all of this argumentation from all points of view, you know, and, and we have to break the digital divide, it's not just about getting digital media and the knowledge from there, but also interacting with citizens and doing surveys and all that. Once we've got all that information, we have to organize it so that people can make decisions. And so we actually already do this at the city council level. We serve city councils by um, collecting knowledge from all stakeholders and then organizing it into a, a micro voting protocol. So we're trying to accomplish several things here. First, when people make decisions, they're oftentimes making decisions in the black box of their own minds. And they're making all sorts of logical calculations and they're weighting things in ways that may not be obvious to them. And that's just because that's how our brains work. Our brains make sense of things, we have all these heuristics. But the problem with that is, is that we may not be able to easily detect where we are cognitively biased and where we're making logical mistakes. The human mind is subject to like over 300 types of logical fallacies in terms of our vulnerabilities in thinking and over 190 different cognitive biases. So our decision-making models are about laying out all of the pro-con argumentation across different dimensions of a decision on paper so that it's externalized in a way in which we ask users of the decision-making model to go through every single tiny piece of knowledge one step at a time and make a little micro vote on pro, a con, what have you. And essentially at the end, what it tells them is, this is how you think about the economic dimension of this issue. This is how you think about the environmental decision. This is how you think about the idea itself versus how it's executed. And so it tells people, once you've actually sat down and gone through the methodological process of like including all information in your decision making, here is your decision. And we're just trying to marginally improve how people make decisions and make it, again, more informed, more inclusive, and less biased. And ultimately, long term, we want to scale this up to actually operate at the, the national level. But currently, we're at the city council level. Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds very interesting. I, I, I think I followed most of that. But uh, I, 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 I kind of want to ask this. It's, uh, I have to say, that's really really interesting that that you kind of take I mean you mentioned it at the beginning of 
uh, what you were talking about there that you use other platforms and you kind of analyze what they're saying there, what they're saying here, and you bring it together all and you have all this information, right? But uh, I mean, I want to kind of offer this perspective. I could see someone being like concerned. Is it like a computer or a machine AI making the decision or is it a society library that's making the decision? Because I mean, we're getting the information, right? And is it a person making it or is it a computer? Because I could see potentially people might look at that and be like, oh, this is dangerous. This is something we don't want. It, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, ultimately, the decision-making models that we're creating are to improve human intelligence. Gotcha. So it's always a human who's making the decision. The way in which we design these decision-making models is to accommodate how humans think and process knowledge so that their decisions can be made. If we were to make decision-making models for like an AI or a computer, the model would be very different. Mm -hmm. And I think one day perhaps AI may make better decisions than a group of humans could collaboratively. But there are always, I think, always will have to be humans in the loop because much like, you know, democracy in an ideal sense now is based on consent, like it's government by consent. Mm -hmm. um, we have to agree to how our government proceeds. I think if we, once models um, that rely on like, you know, computer processing and AI improve over time and are transparent, explainable, less biased than human performers, which is something that could arguably be tested and measured, we still need to have humans in the loop for consent because that's how we protect like our, um, you know, freedoms and our rights. So it's always uh, humans making the decisions as of now. But of course, we do use some AI tools, but um, we are a library in that like we adhere to very strict virtues mm -hmm. and values in terms of the decisions that we make in how we collect knowledge and how we curate it and what we include and what we clean up. So for your audiences who may not know, libraries, especially in the tradition of the United States, are really radical with this mm -hmm. concept called intellectual freedom. So it's like more information is better. There's no need for censorship so long as people have choice as to what they consume and there's appropriate context. And um, you know, I'm really hoping that the Society Library can help transcribe and translate some librarian principles to the internet because you know, complete anti-censorship doesn't necessarily work on the internet in the same way that it does in a library. And that's because libraries are like physical and they have natural confines. There's only so much space on a bookshelf. Mm. So librarians have to make curation decisions. On the internet, you don't necessarily need that. And yet, if you don't make curation decisions, who knows what rabbit holes people are going to go down. And it's not that it's a problem that people go down their own rabbit holes. That's fine. But it could be indoctrinating and propagandizing and even coercing and be controlled and manipulated by specific groups that actually do violate the intellectual freedom of the individual. So how, do, how can we make sure there's enough context in all of these little rabbit holes and all the information people are presented so they don't get sucked in and propagandized and instead can always maintain like their intellectual freedom um, so that they can just become, you know, wiser and wiser to the broader context of our knowledge landscape. I think that that's always something reassuring, I guess you could say people like to hear that. Cause I mean, with the inform like the invention of, I guess not invention, but the people are building on AI, making it better. And I actually do agree with that point that I think eventually we'll have AI making most of the decisions. Well, of course, with human consent saying, hey, like, don't do this type of thing. Like, don't terminate us or any, you know, the things you see in the movies, some of those silly things. But uh, I had to chuckle there a little bit. It was, uh, I think it's funny that the uh, AI, especially, I think that will play a big role in the future. But I, I think a little bit more on this. Uh, 
I, I kind of want to get your thoughts on this. Is it possible for a human to be like completely like unbiased though? Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like people are swayed different directions when it comes to an issue. And is that kind of the problem that Society Library is trying to solve here is to try and hit that middle ground and show, hey, this is what these guys are saying. This is what these guys are saying. And these are the, the information, the points, the facts that they're bringing to the table. These are the information, the points, the facts they're bringing to the table. This is kind of the decision we should go with going forward. Is that kind of, if I'm, am I following this correctly? Well, let's see. There's there's multiple things you asked, and I'm excited about answering several of them. So let's start with, like, is it possible for humans to be unbiased? And I think depending upon the definition of bias, um, I would say no. And I would even go so far as to say, like, just for people to consider, that the experience of being a human being is inherently biased. Um, like, we are all, like, these interesting, like, expressions and accumulations of experiences and ideas, and um, that's the wonderful thing about being human, is that we're all so, like, unique and different. You could take 100 people and put them all through the exact same thing, but the way that they emotionally react, intellectually react, is going to be diverse, which I think is really lovely and wonderful. But, of course, that can be problematic if we're trying mm -hmm. to create a consensus reality and all agree on certain things, whether that's values or, like, the perception of reality, which is also really interesting because, um, you know, there's some arguments to be made that human biases um, can form priors that can actually literally shape the way that we see reality. So if your audience remembers um, the dress, it was like a really famous oh, yes. uh, image that circulated around the internet and people disagreed about whether it was black and uh, blue or white and gold. It actually, if I'm not mistaken, completely disrupted color theory because color theorists were not able to explain why exactly people were seeing it differently. And it turned out the conclusion was, is that um, based on people's ex prior experiences with light, meaning if they spent a lot of time under artificial light, like being, you know, in the dark and in front of a computer versus in natural light, their brain would make different assumptions about the ambiguity of the lighting condition of the image and autocorrect the color for them. So like the way that we literally see reality can be shaped by our brains, making assumptions based on our past experiences, which is like insane that uh, that's so literal. We're so literally seeing reality mm -hmm. differently. So I don't think humans can be unbiased. <laughs> I think we are biased and I think that's great as well as difficult. So yes, what the society library's goals are is to figure out, okay, if we're all coming from different backgrounds, we've interacted with different ideas, we have different values and assumptions, and we have different sets of knowledge that we're operating on. How do we create create media artifacts and knowledge artifacts and societal institutions to enable the possibility to see from different points of view. So even though I may spend a lot of time under artificial light, how can I be shown a version of that image that is edited so I can see what other people mm. see who see it as white and gold, for example? Um, that's just an editing job, right? This is yeah. what people see. I'm betting it's a little bit more complex with what you're doing, though, compared to the dress. Just not It's not just an edit. Definitely. No, it, it definitely is more complex, and it's more complex in various ways. So it's not just like, okay, we have to figure out what's all the knowledge that the different points of view have encountered, what are all the facts that they use to support their reasoning, but also it's a matter of how do we create media products and experiences through a technological medium so that people can emotionally comprehend things. That, to me, is the big challenge. It's not just like, cool, I've seen all the facts from mm -hmm. all different sides, but how do I get into the headspace 
and understand the emotional reasoning and the feelings that come from different points of view, which are kind of impossible when you get down to things like sex and gender and race and, and like poverty yeah. and class and things like that. It can be very difficult to ever assume that you could spend a microsecond in someone else's shoes. But when it comes to us making collective decisions and us having to feel either intellectual or emotional empathy for each other, how do we do that? How do we collect clips from movies, for example, that show some sort of like violence in the civil rights era that can get people to feel that same anger and disgust and horror? Like, what are the different media artifacts? Who are the different actors and thought leaders who can like essentially enable comprehension, Trojan horse, like emotional empathy into the minds of others? So we can kind of get on the same page as much as possible. Yeah, I I like the wording there. I mean, uh, Trojan horse, I mean, people hear that and they'll be like, oh, no, that's like, that's scary. But I like how you said the Trojan horse of empathy. That's, I think that's a funny play on words. There. That's, that's awesome. And I, I, I agree. I think, you know, I mean, we could all be nicer. I mean, that's just, I mean, to put it plain <laughs> and simple, we all could be nicer. We could all try and understand what type of shoes they're in. But uh, I have to say that there's people out there, I think, that are against this. I, I don't want to say against, but I would say that they are more they view it as like, who's going to fact check like the people making these decisions, right? Like, I, th I feel like that could be something that comes up and they're like, well, if they're making all the decisions, who's going to keep them in check, right? It's like the checks and balances type of thing that we set up in the US. I, I feel like that could be worrisome for a couple of people that, you know, think that way. So what's kind of your thoughts for that? Well, let me first start by saying that the Trojan horse thing was poor word choice because <laughs> we care a lot about consent, right? And so Trojan horse, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, oh, they like broke in through the castle walls. And we don't want to do that. We want to um, have people consent to opting in to that experience because mm -hmm. um, when it comes to some subject matter, it can actually be really traumatizing. Like there's certain members of the community, like our collective community, who do not need to re-experience like the atrocities of the civil rights movement yeah. <laughs> in terms of like what activists experience. Like that's would be traumatizing for mm -hmm. them. So there needs to be like a trigger warning. You're about to see this. You don't have to see it. But if you are someone who's not likely to be re-traumatized and you, you've never had that emotional comprehension, you should probably opt in so that you can kind of understand a different dimension of the knowledge. So my apologies for the word, <laughs> word choice. And then when it comes to like decisions and like who's fact-checking the fact-checkers and things like that. Um, one, I just want to say again, the Society Library is only interested in creating products that are cognitive aids to different members of the public. So we'll never be making decisions or telling anyone what's mm. true or not true or what to do. But we're just creating the ways, you know, the products and the systems and the knowledge sets so other people can make better decisions. However, I completely agree that like there are still decisions being made in terms of how knowledge is classified and organized and what tags are on it and how it's cleaned up and steel manned and all those things. Mm -hmm. And so in the meantime, in the short term, what we have are some, you know, anti-bias principles. We've got 22 different methods to overcome our own bias in our research methods. We've got our virtues and values and we have our knowledge policies, which people can see on our website. Long term, what I'm really interested in is borrowing exactly from the checks and balances that were a part of our uh, government design. And so it's uh, something called, uh, you know, 
intercoder reliability, which means that I want to create a, a twin system in which the same work is being done by two different groups of people. One could be the society librarians internally, and another one could just be open for the general public. And essentially, once we've really nailed down our pipeline really well, people can participate in like the tagging and organization of knowledge. And what we'll be able to see is, are the society librarians and the public coming to the same conclusions? And like, why are they different? Like, are there errors being made? Like, is there just not training? Or is there bias happening? So we're definitely interested in not only being a transparent organization, but really rigorous in terms of being as unbiased as we possibly can, which is, you know, unfortunately resource dependent. So we'll just have to grow into it over time. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, like we try really hard to get all the accreditations and badges for transparency and honesty, um, just to like maintain the reputation of like, um, you know, being an organization that is really, truly sincere about not coercing anybody, not trying to persuade, convince, or like drive anyone towards any conclusion. Because if there's something that the society library knows, it's that like our mission is to inquire into truth, not to tell anyone what it is. That that last part, especially, I think, is it's huge. I, I think that I would say it's a revolutionary idea, but I mean, a lot of people talk about it, right? But at the same time, no one actually has created something that does that. So I think that's really cool that you're doing that, that last part, especially that I was just, man, that was awesome. So I, I kind of want to talk about this. I mean, I like the, the points you were making about how, like, I feel like oftentimes humans are, you know, too quick to conclusion, right? They see something and then they're quick to, uh, conclusions. So I kind of want to, I mean, your, your company kind of solves that, but how would you help them? Like, cause I have my, just to give you an idea, my audience is generally 18 to 24. They're kind of experimenting with life. They're like, all right, should I go to college? Should I go into trades? They're, they're kind of all over the place. They don't really know what's fact, what's truth, what's, what, what is all this? We, it's almost an information overload type of thing. And I mean, mm. I could see that they struggle with something like, oh, this says this, and then this says this. And they're like, well, I agree with both type of thing. Is, is that kind of the goal? I would say is that the goal that you're trying to accomplish here is that hey, this is true and this is true type of thing. How can we come to, how can I make a decision so then I can improve the lives of both parties here? How can I improve it? Is that kind of what you're looking to do there? Am I hitting the right buttons? I'm just trying to understand better. Yeah, yeah, actually. So our mission is to enable people to functionally negotiate ideological conflicts in a manner that maximizes freedom in being through access to information, hmm. which is a very fluffy way of kind of saying like, let's just kind of figure out a way in which we can all get along while accepting the fact that we're going to come to conclusions that are different and disagree. But like, how can we respect each other's right to hmm. exist and express oneself and operate in the world free? while also solving problems. And we find that to be fundamentally rooted in the information that we have. Um, and then I, I'll just tell your audience straight up, like these are our goals. Like the society library, when we like test, because in order to see if you are valuable as an organization, you have to test yourself. And it's beyond just like how many people are going to your website and things like that. So what we're interested in seeing is can our knowledge products increase an understanding of complexity? So Josh, kind of like what you said, like 
you may have two sets of information and they both look really strong. It's like, how do we reconcile the fact that these are opposite? <laughs> and that's just about really dealing with the fact that we live in a complex world and we can only know so much. There are so many things that we know that we don't know and then things that we don't even know that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at any point in time, we may be dealing with like just these opposites that both look strong. So how do we kind of find a way around like contrasting information sets while solving problems. So, you know, one example, I mean, right now, I think uh, some people are very upset about the Roe v. Wade mm -hmm. um, issue that's coming up with the Supreme Court. So like an example with, uh, you know, ideological opposites that both just exist and potentially have the right to exist, maybe the value conflict between, you know, women saying the government can't tell me what to do with my own body and I interpret an embryo and fetus as being a part of my body until it's out of my body. And then another group saying that, you know, that embryo and fetus is essentially a human being and they have the inherent right to life as human rights. And so those are just like ideological opposites mm -hmm. that are irreconcilable and it's just a matter of definition and how do you go about proving human life, right? Yeah. Like that's a very difficult deliberation to have. But if we're trying to like solve a problem here, the the problem that we could look at and, and, and solve is like, okay, well, Maybe we just want to lessen the need for abortions happening. And so how do we lessen the problem from existing? Oh, it turns out like there's all this wonderful evidence that certain types of like reproductive education, et cetera, et cetera, like prevent the need for this problem to arise, which cannot be solved unless the state decides that one value set is correct over another, which is, you know, it's kind of antithetical to what a value is because it can be kind of difficult to prove what va value is right or not right. It's kind of a matter of opinion to a certain extent. And, um, you know, human beings are fantastic at defining things and making up definitions. But when it comes to like finding out like quintessentially when life begins, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree there. And uh, it's hard because I think, right, both have, like you said, they both have strong arguments for and against. But essentially, it's an opinion, right? It's a moral that they feel like they're like, hey, this is what I believe is the right thing to do. And it's hard because sometimes we just, I mean, yes, we're overloaded with information, but maybe sometimes we just don't have enough information. Maybe it's like, hey, we don't. So you almost, I think, sometimes need to go to that other side to get the other side of the information, right? You need to actually go over and say, all right, I have this information. Now I have this information. And maybe you can come to an even better like solution, right? Like you have this solution and this solution, but then it comes to this solution because you're like, oh, wait, this is. Now we have this type of information. We have this type of information. Now we can come to this conclusion. So I, I, I like what you were saying there. I think I think I hit it right there at the yeah. what I was talking about there. But I kind of want to, because I mean I think we're both not strangers to what's happening on social media. Like you see stuff happening nonstop and a lot of conflict. So I kind of want to ask you this: How do you get? those opposing views, those people that are so strong in their ways, I guess to say, to actually go and at least read the information on this side or go and read the information on this other side. What would be like your suggestion to do that? Well, first, let me wrap up what I was saying before. So increasing an appreciation for complexity is one thing, but also like just increasing subject matter knowledge and depolarizing and all those other things are, are part of our goals too, including increasing intellectual humility. So those are our goals. Mm -hmm. It's not about coercion or anything like that. Um, okay. So about uh, getting people to be intellectually curious enough to engage with the content. Well, for this, unfortunately for your viewers, I have a kind of sad answer. <laughs> There's a quote that I really love, which is, the truth never wins, but its opponents eventually die out. 
Hmm. So although in order for the society library to be relevant today, we have to come up with strategies in order to engage people, whether it's through like direct invitation or like marketing and saying like, do you want to know everything about your point of view? Cool. And then like, surprise, here's all these other points of view, you know? So there's that invitation and like appealing directly to their biases in order for them to accept the invitation and then discover the library. Expose them to other types of information as Right, exactly. And, ju and just by context, you know, mm -hmm. like just it being there, not necessarily jamming it down their throats or anything. No. <laughs> um, but I will say, like, the Society Library is actually a long-term plan. It is, we, what we are dedicated to is figuring out um, what is the best institution for future generations to grow up with. Like, I grew up with the internet, I grew up with Wikipedia, and then I inherited from centuries before things like books and newspapers and television and radio mm -hmm. and things like that. This new generation is inventing new media, like TikToks and tweets and stuff like that. So what the Society Library is focused on is like, okay, if our goals are to enable people to understand complexity and nuance and see all these different points of view and interact with media in a way that's going to make them more wise if they choose, because they're going to be able to emotionally understand things. They're going to be able to dive deep into every single subject, and we're going to save them those thousands and thousands of hours of research and consolidation and all of that stuff. You know, what does that have to look like? And then how do we get it into people's hands as early as possible? So it's like, just like I grew up with, you know, television just being in my home and the library just being at my school, how can future generations of humans grow up with a much better like digital knowledge infrastructure and knowledge products to make them literally more intellectually free so they're less likely to be indoctrinated less likely to be propagandized less likely to just be put into an echo chamber at birth and that they then are empowered to choose where they want to invest their belief so instead of just inheriting ideas from the past they can take a look at a menu of ideas and say these are all the different things i could believe and i get the bonus of being able to assess what all these ideas are literally made of in terms of evidence and the origin of the knowledge and all of that. And I get to choose. So we are very like much looking towards the future and trying to become, you know, an institution for the future. But that means right now we're tinkering with, okay, how much knowledge can we compress into a visualization that people will still understand without being overwhelmed? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that we're collecting from all points of view? How do we make sure that we're not falling into like knowledge policy traps, like accidentally platforming a dog whistle and what's our policy on this type of information, et cetera, et cetera. So we're figuring things out as we go to appeal to subjects that are relevant today, but really it's about um, how can humanity in the future be much better off than what we have with in terms of our information environment today. Yes, I, 100%, that was, thank you for clearing that up. I think a lot of people, and I, I kinda wanna uh, maybe go more in the direction of more of your, your goals, your values and your morals and what that is with the company. I mean, you kind of, brushed it at the beginning, you kind of said that, but I, if we could go into more depth about that, I would love that. I think yeah. people would benefit from that and really get uh, better insights into how they can use your platform and essentially trust it. Because if you really break it down, I feel like everything, the foundation of everything in society comes down to trust. And that's just the foundation of everything. If you have trust in this or trust in that, like that's the ultimate foundation is you have to trust it in the first place. So kind of how do you get people to like kind of trust what you're doing here and trust? I mean, you already cleared up, hey, this we're not like fact checking or trying to lean you one way or the other. We're just providing the information. But how can you uh, establish that trust and, you know, get them to maybe be more uh, 
relieved, I guess, to say. Yeah. Well, Josh, one thing I will say is that I think you're right. I think that so much of our civilization and society operates on trust. I'm perfectly aware that not everyone is going to go to the society library and read every single piece of data in these collections. You know, (laughs) at some point, something is going to indicate to them, trust this over that. Um, And because the society library is never going to tell anyone this is what's true or not true, they can only trust the society library process and the integrity of what we've collected, never our decisions, because we don't make any. We're just providing information. Um, So they just have to, again, trust our process, trust that we've done a good job curating and cleaning and haven't biased the data ourselves. So there's a few different things that we're working on. And I guess this is like a really tough problem because we're almost Mm -hmm. like in a trust crisis. Yes. (laughs) Um, But one of the reasons why, you know, the society library is a library in terms of like, not only as an institution, but also in terms of branding, is because libraries have a really great reputation. They, for the most part, have remained nonprofit, while things like uh, you know newspapers have become for profit, and arguably have been for a long time. Mm-hmm. Educational institutions as well. So like we've seen a decline in trust in like the media ecosystem and in um, educational institutions. But uh, the last bit of data I saw was from a Pew survey, which suggested that trust in libraries has maintained. Um, and that's because like they just literally exist to serve the public. Mm-hmm. They're not there to make money. You know, librarians are a wonderful like caricature in terms of like they literally exist just to give you the information that you want and help you find it. And they're not trying to, you know, convince you to believe one thing or another. And they're totally anti-censorship and yada, yada. So we're really trying to embody library virtues and values, because if we can embody librarianship successfully, then like we are inherently a public serving institution. Um, we are a nonprofit, so we do not exist to um, make any type of profit. Um, we actually, uh, in case your viewers don't know, a nonprofit means nobody owns it. So like if the society library is successful, that doesn't necessarily mean I get any benefit at all as the founder. Um, It literally exists to serve the public. Um, We are currently in the top 2% of nonprofits in terms of transparency. So we are Platinum Star transparent on GuideStar. GuideStar is a nonprofit rating system, which means we give over the most amount of data that they ask for in order to assess how we operate. So we've maintained a Platinum Star transparency rating for a couple of years now. We intend on continuing to maintain that and only become more transparent over time, which again is just dependent on resources. Um, And like our whole process, we're hoping to make more and more transparent. So essentially for anyone who wants to, they can audit our work. Right now that's hard because like we don't have the finances to create the infrastructure to make us totally Mm -hmm. auditable. Um, But in the future, we definitely want that. We want someone to be able to take a look at every single step of our process, whether that's like actually building the information pipeline on a blockchain or something like that. Like, so every single micro decision that's made is recorded. So someone could take a look at us and say, you made a bias call here, or you did this or that. Um, There's some scientific principles that we want to borrow from the social sciences uh, that make us uh, rigorous. So I mentioned the intercoder reliability, which means like there's a lot of redundancy in the process so that we can detect when there's differences in the conclusions of the work. Uh, You know, be really honest and open about mistakes that we make. If we make any type of error, we need to be really upfront about, Mm -hmm. you know, admitting this is how this went wrong. This is the mistake that we made and this is what we're putting in place to fix it. And yeah, I mean, the only danger is, is even if we're doing all of these things, we're transparent with our finances, we're transparent with our operations, we are inherently nonprofit, you know, like we have the type of culture Mm -hmm. at the society library where we are really dedicated to not biasing content. Um, You know, anyone could do uh, launch a propagandistic attack on us and say they're biased for this and that reason. So we're always going to be vulnerable. So we just have to, um, you know, kind of operate quietly for long enough while to build relationships and build reputation 
information so that it's harder to just smear campaign us because it's so much easier just to discredit someone with nonsense than to like prove innocence. It just is so much more difficult. Oh, and, and actually your users, if they go to our website, they actually will not find any of the collections publicly available yet. And that's because we refuse to publish anything that we don't determine to meet a specific threshold, which we call meaningful completion. And that means that we haven't yet covered a subject enough to not bias it by publishing it, which means like we still have to flesh out a point of view or we haven't gone as far in depth. So we are just like adhering to unbelievably, ridiculously rigorous standards of completion. So, I mean, that, that hopefully is a testament to our virtues and values in our standards, because we're literally trying to create a new standard of media. Like everyone deserves to have a knowledge set that is not cutting any corners, that truly, sincerely, deeply serves to make sure that anyone who interacts with that content is as informed as they possibly can be. So like we're really trying to live up to ultimate service, as opposed to like the life cycle of publishing news articles or posting on social media, which can happen more instantaneously and is more interested in views and trends and likes and shares. We're really interested in educating and informing so those are all the ways in which we're trying to be our best that's that's <laughs> awesome thank you for I think that, especially when you mentioned that it was nonprofit so I think I mean I actually agree with you I think one of the biggest problems is that media companies are for profit right now because I mean I'm, I'm a business owner myself I know what it's like right <laughs> you 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 put out a product and you go and you sell it to them and you exchange value and I'm like, that's just, just how business works. And I I can see where that causes problems though in the media because they're providing information to the public, right? And essentially the only trust they have is their branding. And then I loved how you said that it's similar to library values. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that libraries have maintained their trust levels while as uh, media companies have actually declined. I think I, I didn't know that. And I, I'm sure a lot of people didn't know that as well. So I think I, I like your approach. I think people ought to go more the nonprofit route. So I want to actually drop though the intelligent question of the day and maybe it won't be, maybe it, maybe it will, but how, how would you say, so that we have media companies, right? They're for profit. And then we have uh, your example, you're a nonprofit. So how do you take on people that essentially they have more resources, they have more things like that? What would be the best way to challenge that? I mean, ultimately, I mean, as much as I love nonprofit, I love donating to them. I actually try to here and there and I try my best, but I feel like most people kind of like they kind of neglect donating. They, they go for the for-profit medium. So mm. what's the best way to kind of sway that so then maybe we actually progress towards a getting better information better you know content for us yeah i mean so it's a great question choosing the nonprofit route is difficult because uh, especially when you're in this sector because it's not like i can tell people if you give me 5 bucks i will plant a tree you know, like the society yes. library is doing a lot of R&D and a lot of exploration and a lot of tinkering and testing to see how can we blow the minds of humanity so that we are more wise and informed and less biased and like more inclusive as at the societal scale. Like there's a lot of work to be done. So it can be difficult to demonstrate value and get people to, to donate and, uh, you know, even donate their time and volunteer. So 
how nonprofits survive is they survive by inspiring and making people feel good. And so this responsibility of the Society Library is to keep contributing value. And over time, we just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate these contributions so that people feel good investing in us. And I mean, the Society Library thrives very much off of like small to medium sized donors. But of course, like really the nonprofit game is to build an endowment, which means you get enough donations that you put into a fund and then you invest that fund and then you live off the interest, which essentially makes you free forever. So many, many um, institutions in the glam sector, galleries, libraries, archives, mm -hmm. and museums, that is like how they reach sustainability. Um, in the meantime, you know, we keep the lights on by, we, we do actually sell services and products. So we sell fact checks, we build databases, like they all have to be mission related. So they have to be on subject matter that's mission related, a topic we would already cover, et cetera. But like we do do various things to improve the epistemic environment that companies are interested in, but help us do our nonprofit mission and do not serve to coerce or anything. It all has to be for educational purposes. Um, so we do like sell services to keep the lights on. But ultimately the goal is to contribute enough value that you endear yourself to uh, wealthy foundations and funds and DAFs and donors to build an, an endowment and then you live forever. So if someone is like, you know, they go to a museum and it's a Tiffany lamp museum and it's a museum literally of Tiffany lamps and everyone's like, how on earth does this exist? How does it have a beautiful piece of property on Park Avenue? How on earth do they pay their bills? It's because some wealthy family a while ago fell in love with Tiffany lamps and gave them a bazillion dollars to invest in an endowment. So, um, you know, that's just kind of the game. Live long enough, be of service, be of value until you win a big prize. And then you are, you essentially invest that fund and you're free. And so you don't have to compete like newspapers to keep up with that life cycle of, you know, selling things that um, shock and keep people addicted and engaged. Like yeah. you can literally just perform your mission and make that contribution without having to worry. But yeah, in the meantime, your viewers should know that like, uh, there are many ways in which you can contribute to any nonprofit, yes. whether that's treasure or time or talent, and that's how um, society can improve. I mean, corporations can definitely make life easier. They can relieve pain points, mm -hmm. um, but nonprofits can too, and they don't need to necessarily like generate more crap and generate garbage and create waste and pollute in the meantime. So just consider like picking up a nonprofit or two, making it as a part of your mission and, uh, you know, generally contributing on an ongoing basis to make the world a better place. Love it. That right there, everyone was the intelligent answer of the day. That was, that was great. I think I liked especially the end when you were saying that everyone can do something to uh, help a nonprofit in specific because I mean, I mentioned this before, my audience is, a lot of them, right, they have a lot of college debt, or some of them are really limited on their funds, right? They just don't have access to donate maybe towards something that they want. And volunteering, right, you mentioned that, there's other ways mm -hmm. that you can go and help nonprofits, so then they can succeed as well, and then you can see that happen as time goes on. And I think that's that's a wonderful thing. I That's actually something I kind of believe I think we need more nonprofits. I mean, I, I'm all for corporations too. I mean, it does make our life easier. <laughs> it does. I mean, I love that I can just drive up to a window and get a cheeseburger, right? Like, <laughs> it's an <laughs> awesome thing. But at the same time, right, we also need nonprofit because I think it actually acts as that balancing. Corporations, they can do things at a faster, faster rate. But nonprofits make sure that we keep our morals in check and make sure that, 
you know, maybe we actually, you know, stop a minute and say, hey, how do how is this going to impact us down the road? And I think those two kind of check each other. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. But uh, if you if you have any other thoughts, we can kind of begin to wrap up here if that's all right with you. Yeah. One thing I'll say for your audience to consider is that um, you're right. Corporations kind of move fast and break things. And the reason why they get so strong and powerful and can keep going is because they are solving a problem. They are making things convenient or easier or something. But one way to think about nonprofits is like nonprofits are kind of the way in which we clean up the mess of things moving fast and breaking. Mm -hmm. So like... Um, you know, cleaning up the oceans, planting trees, cleaning up our air, cleaning up our information ecosystem. There's a lot of ways in which the profit incentive has made a huge mess. And at a certain point in time, we're either going to trash civilization or we're going to invest in like that good housemate or that good roommate who will help clean up the mess make sure the dishes get done, yes. things get vacuumed, the trash gets taken out um, and disposed of properly. And that's like in a really important, healthy part of being like a well-rounded and healthy civilization and human. So it's a really good investment and it can be so easy. Like I said, if, mm-hmm. you're, if you're young, you don't have a lot of money, donate your time, donate your talent. Even sharing what the work of nonprofits are doing can be a huge help, more than you would imagine. So there's always something that you can do. And it's really lovely when nonprofits can be true nonprofits. Like, it's silly if I have to buy a bracelet just to donate money to clean up a pound of trash from the ocean. I would rather just donate money to clean a pound of trash from mm-hmm. the ocean. But unfortunately, some nonprofits, much like mine um, or the Society Library, we have to do things to make sure um, that it works. Create products and services to keep the lights on, which distracts from the mission for the most part. But uh, sometimes we can make it mission aligned, which the Society Library works really hard to do. Um, but overall, I just want to thank you all for listening. And Josh, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thank thank you for coming on. And uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, you Society Library especially. But if people want to like maybe donate or reach out, anything like that, what's the best way that they can uh, reach out to you and get a hold of you? Yeah, I mean, so uh, societylibrary.com is our website. On all the social media platforms, or almost all of them, we're at Society Library. You can just straight up email me at contact at societylibrary.com. And you can also find open volunteer um, gigs at volunteermatch.com. And you can also go on our website and fill out a form to volunteer as well. So, And that's also where you can donate. So any of the things, um, you can pretty much find everything on our website. But you can also just reach out to me directly. Awesome. Sweet. So for those of you that are listening right now, I would, you know, at least go check it out, go and see and learn more about society library. I think Jamie here has given great things. She's very well, uh, very intelligent. I just tell, and she's very good with words. Very, I mean, I could just go on about the awesome things that she shared with us today, but Jamie, thank you for coming on. I want to express my thanks as well. Thank you for coming on to the show today. All right, everyone, as you can tell, that is Jamie Joyce. She is a very intelligent person and I challenge you guys again. She left you that contact info to go and check it out and, you know, maybe donate to a nonprofit if that's something you guys are looking at doing. But stay tuned till next week. We have a great guest lined up for you guys that week as well. See you guys next week and let's get after it. Hey everyone, if you liked this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button. We release a new episode every Wednesday for you guys to listen to. Thank you guys so much for the support that you give. We could not have done this without you guys. If you would like to be a potential guest on the show, check out intelligentconvos.com and fill out the form there. Thank you guys again. 
and let's get after it.